Data Stories is supported by Tableau Software, helping people see and understand their data. Get answers from interactive dashboards wherever you go. For your free trial, visit Tableau Software at tableau.com slash data stories. That's T-A-B-L-E-A-U dot com slash data stories. Hi everyone, Data Stories number 52. Hi Moritz, how's it going? Hey Enrico, good, 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 good. Sunny, sunny, sunny Germany? It, it's dark here already, it's <laughs> 7 p.m., man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but it's been, no, it's been a so beautiful clear day. So clear sky? Beautiful day, clear sky. You can see the stars, um, Milky Way. Yeah, let me see. Hard to tell at the moment. I'll check later. I'll let you know later. Yeah. Um, no, but it's, it's been a beautiful day. I'm just a bit tired. It's been a long week, but... Um, Things are good. Yeah. yeah. How are things for you? Great. Uh, yeah, lots of work as usual, but spring seems to be here and such a big relief. Oh, man, it's been crazy so far. Been a tough winter in New York, huh? Yeah. It's been terrible. <laughs> <laughs> At least for an Italian, it's been yeah. really nasty. Here it's brutal. just been boring. Always yeah. around plus minus zero. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of... Yeah. yeah. And I'm talking from my new standing desk. I'm so excited. That's cool. Like, you can hear the motor. Mm -hmm. Is it moving? Yeah, it's moving. <laughs> <laughs> so, so are you traveling through the building? <laughs> With a Segway? <laughs> yeah. That's that would the be next nice. Level. That's the next level. Yeah. 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 Yeah, treadmill Treadmill is obviously the next step, That's right? the next step. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm already behind. <laughs> <laughs> no, but standing is good. I have a standing desk too, and uh, I should use it more often, but sometimes I I remember to get up and do a call in standing instead of sitting. It's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we have another big guest today. We are very happy to have Jen Christensen from Scientific American. Hi, Jen. Hi. How are Thanks you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Uh, great. As I just said, we're doing really well here. So Jen is our Director of Information Graphics at Scientific American, and uh, we had her in our list for a very long time, so we are very happy to have you here, Jen. And uh, we want to talk about what happens at Scientific American and, of course, how it works. I mean, how do you create visualization for science? That's really, really interesting. So Jen, can you briefly introduce yourself? Maybe you can tell us what's your background, what you're doing, what's your role of Scientific American? Sure, sure. First of all, thanks for having me. It's a real treat to be here. Um, but uh, yes, I'm, um, I actually came out of a scientific illustration background. So just to give you a, the, the quick story, um, I uh, studied geology and studio art in undergraduate um, uh, college and uh, then uh, didn't want to choose one field at the um, exclusion of the other and found a science illustration program at the uh, University of California, Santa Cruz. So did a one-year um, natural science illustration program, um, which then uh, led into an internship at Scientific American back in uh, around 96, mm -hmm. I believe, um, where I started to learn about publishing apprenticeship style um, there for about eight weeks, and then it actually turned into a job. <laughs> so, uh, so um, I learned more and more about publishing in the magazine world. Um, so, I was an assistant art director at Scientific American for a few years, and then um, 
uh, left to go work at National Geographic magazine, where I was an assistant art director there for a few years, and then moved over to the design department, where I learned a little bit more about uh, magazine production and design. Um, um, again, a little bit apprenticeship style, um, mm. kind of you know going up the learning curve. Um, and then I freelanced for a bit, and eventually returned to Scientific American, where I've um, been back for oh probably a good eight years or so. Um, most recently. Um, at, as the art director of information graphics when they kind of reorganized the art department uh, about five years ago and sort of made that a category of its own. Interesting. So how long have you been at Scientific American now? Oh gosh, off and on for, um, well, I, I worked there for about two years and then I left and I, but they were one of my primary freelance um, uh, clients uh -huh, when I was uh -huh. um, freelancing, uh, but most recently full time for about eight years. But so wow. probably uh, ten years as a staff person, and then a good four years um, additionally as a freelancer. So I think so. I think a natural question that I want to ask you is, what has changed during these years? Because I think so much has happened in this field. So I guess you have experienced the. Uh, quite a few changes during these years, right? Right. Well, I was so lucky to enter the field at a time where um, desktop publishing was established, yet we were still getting most of our artwork through the mail um, as pieces, you know, as paintings. Um, and, and even some of the data visualization was being, you know, done by hand. Um, we, we were starting to get like SciQuest discs. Do you remember those? <laughs> <laughs> what is that? No, I don't. <laughs> It was after the floppy disk, but it was larger than a floppy, uh, <laughs> but before the CD. <laughs> so How's we used to get a, a SciQuest. I think that was probably just the brand name for it. Is it like SIP drives? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. well, it was larger okay, yeah. than that, though. They were lar a little bit yeah. larger, I believe. Yeah, yeah it's okay. a thick, um, uh, thick um, disk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember. So we'd get, uh, you know, artist deliveries either uh, as paintings or as um, uh, on these drives that would be, you know, you'd return it then afterwards because they were <laughs> expensive, you know. And, uh, yeah. um, so it was really neat to to sort of be at that transition point, um, getting to use the best of digital and, and learning on the job because so many people were at that point, um, how to use the tools. Um, and it's sort of like, I feel like it's a bit like the transition we're going through um, now with um, the way people consume the media. Um, in, in the mid-90s, it was the way we were creating the magazine um, was shifting to the digital world. Um, but not exclusively. I mean, even today, we still get the occasional painting. But, um, but now it's the way people are consuming um, the material is kind of in that same groundswell change. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's also interesting, um, I remember when we were doing uh, graphs and data visualizations um, based on scientific papers back in the mid-90s and early 2000s, um, if you were lucky, you had maybe a JPEG of what they had output, and we were literally sometimes tracing bar charts mm -hmm. in Illustrator to style them for our purposes. <laughs> um, so... I, I don't say it proudly, but I used to trace graphs sometimes <laughs> and, and style them with our with our magazine's fonts and that sort of thing because that's pretty much how you had to do it um, in an efficient and quick manner. Mm -hmm. Because you had like an original graphic that you wanted to to restyle, but it was only available as as an image, right? 
Right, right. Yeah. And because we were working, you know, with a peer-reviewed material, um, you know, we didn't want to redo the graphic necessarily um, in some cases. But mm -hmm. now I feel like because you can exchange the information in so many different kinds of ways, it really opens up um, the options for how to present it. At the time, if you had, you know, two weeks to, or, or less than that, to produce a graphic um, and you just had an image of it, um, trying to get your hands on the raw data would just take so much time. Right. Um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't really be worth it. So um, you just kind of work with what you have um, and, and style it for your own purposes. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. would you also say the style has changed? Like, have there been, like, are things becoming more data heavy now also in the in the illustrations or the visualizations you publish? Oh, or, definitely. Yeah. 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 Although, you know, when I look back at the Scientific American Archive, um, in the 50s and 60s, there were some pretty data intensive pieces then, but they were directly based on um, what was coming out of the research scientist's lab. Mm -hmm. um, now, and then when um, when I was started at the magazine in the late 90s, we were doing a little bit um, more kind of simple uh, bar charts, line graphs, that sort of thing. Um, but now uh, the expectation is so high for... Um, for people to see kind of new and interesting um, formats and forms um, and are just um, uh, more literate in, in reading graphics. So there's definitely um, a, a call for more of that. In fact, um, about five years ago when we redesigned the magazine, um, uh, we introduced a graphic science page, which is exclusively data visualization. It's not pinned to um, a larger article. Um, and so it, it was kind of one of the ways we could create a channel that just produced that kind of work because um, uh, people are so fascinated by it now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you, you have a page I think you sent me a page where you have lots of graphics coming from past editions. That's pretty cool. Oh, um, yeah. I, I, every once in a while in, uh, in presentations, and I sometimes turn those into blog posts, yeah. There's, um, uh, I pull some samples from the past. And it's, it's kind of fun to uh, take a look, you know, with uh, just the trends over time. Um, uh, in the 1920s, there were kind of these illustrated uh, scaled objects as data visualizations, <laughs> and people think of that as like the infographic, <laughs> right? Yes, and it's you know, sort of, it's nothing new. They were just done in graphite and you know beautiful illustrations. Mm, um, yeah. But that that to really kind of austere and um, completely data driven, no extraneous uh, marks, um, kind of in the fifties. And then when I was there later um, in, in the when the web started kind of kicking in in the late 90s and early 2000s, the magazine sort of responded with, um, in the print magazine, with three-dimensional charts and drop uh -huh. shadows. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because, you know, you're, you're, you're competing with so many different um, avenues and, and outlets that you know, there, there was a sense you needed to engage people. And that was kind of a new way to um, activate a page and engage mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. um, but I think now we've kind of scaled back again and kind of, you know, gotten rid of of things that distort the data, but um, but still have to work at engaging people. I think at, at the same point, once in some technologies have been introduced, people felt free to use a lot of 3D and super colorful stuff as well. Mm -hmm. so I think there is an interesting, I mean, an interesting pattern there that as technology changes, people have more freedom to do things in a certain way and it's not necessarily better, right? Right. Um, 
and at the same time, I have to say that there are so many, so many interesting, complex charts that come from the past that are really, really neat and clean, but also very sophisticated. I mean, if you look at examples coming even from the books of uh, Tufti, or if you look into Bertan as well, I mean, it's it's interesting to see how people have been inventing very complex but useful charts uh, many, many years back, even before technology, the technology that we have today arrived, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about... Um, how do you guys work at Scientific American? What is the process? Well, let's see. Well, um, we have uh, about, I think, about 13 text editors now that have beats. So they are, they are subject matter specialists. Um, so we have somebody who's usually working on the physics articles, um, someone on uh, uh, um, let's see, medical and health, um, someone on evolution, et cetera. Um, our art department is divided into uh, jobs that have media specialties. So I work on all of the information graphics. Um, I sometimes tell people anything with a label on it is something <laughs> that I work on. Um, the more kind of editorial and conceptual pieces are, are directed by another art director um, who also then designs the, the page layout and that sort of thing. So, um, so I work within these kind of graphics frames. Um, and so every month we have about seven um, feature articles in the print magazine. So um, we'll meet, we'll read the preliminary manuscripts. Um, I should also mention that most of our authors, or a lot of our authors, are research scientists. Mm -hmm. So we have a, a person that's representing the work that they're doing and the work of their field. Mm -hmm. um, so we sort of have a direct line to the expert. Um, and then when we are working with journalists, they're also people that are very well versed in the particular topic that they're writing about. So this means that some of your authors are the scientists talking about their own work? Absolutely. Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, so they're talking about their own work within the context of the field, but we're, we're generally um, highlighting a, a lot of uh, their findings as well. Sure. So, um, so we'll get a preliminary manuscripts from um, the scientist authors and our journalist authors um, and then meet with um, uh, the text editor and sort of read through this unedited manuscript through the lens of what visuals um, are, would be helpful for this article. And I, um, I generally think about when I'm trying to figure out if the article even needs an information graphic, um, I, I generally think about it through sort of four different lenses. Um, one of them is, uh, you know, can an image tell the story more efficiently, effectively, or completely than words? So something like a Feynman diagram, where at a glance you can see particles, you know, coming in and colliding, and what particles um, are, result uh, that might be more efficient to do in an image um, than in words. Another lens is um, to is is does the the narrative involve kind of complex and intertwining relationships? Um, so would an image map sort of help the reader track those connections? So um, something like a, a photosynthesis diagram that you may, um, I probably have all seen it in our high mm -hmm. school biology textbooks, where there's a lot of things kind of interacting with each other and it's not terribly, it's not completely linear, um, but when you can kind of see them all at play, um, it's, it's a little bit uh, easier to track what's going on rather than reading a description of it. Mm -hmm. um, one of the kind I mean, of Because the text is necessarily sequential, right? And sometimes, right. right? 
Right. And also, um, sometimes as you get partway through uh, that explanation, you might need to be reminded at what triggered it. Or, you know, what, what, what is the input again? And you don't necessarily mm. want to track back up in the text. But with an image, you can kind of flip back and forth between inputs and outputs mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how they work together. So the image yeah. becomes sort of the high-level roadmap, more or less, for, for exactly. the complex issues. It's an index, yeah. yeah. Yeah, sort of a visual cliff notes sometimes, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, um, let's see, a, a, a third thing is, would the reader benefit from seeing and exploring the trends and patterns of the complete data set? Um, so this is where it overlaps a lot with with many of what your guests talk about um, in that, you know, in the text, they might highlight a number or two or in a poll quote, they might highlight a few statistics, but um, that doesn't tell the whole story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so sometimes um, you really need to show the more kind of complex patterns behind those, those sort of figures that they pull out and highlight in the text, mm -hmm. but um, could use some more context. And then um, I guess the fourth one would be, would a direct and immediate visual comparison be helpful? Sort of a before and after. So you can see a change very easily without even kind of digesting it too much. Um, for instance, um, what do, uh, you know, what does this organ look like uh, without cancer and what does it look like with cancer or how does that mm, impact yeah. like the blood vessels and that sort mm -hmm, of thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, so there's, I'm generally looking, like reading through a manuscript, just kind of wondering if anything that they're explaining in words lends itself to being presented for one of those reasons. Um, and then uh, we kind of stack all of these articles together and start to play around with, well, how many graphics do we have in the issue? Um, are there any big show pieces? Um, are we missing an opportunity for a data visualization where we can go find um, some information that the author maybe has left out and sort of mm -hmm. broadened um, uh, and, and provide a little bit more context for their particular story? Um, yeah, so that's sort of like the initial brainstorming and sort of start to start to um, create a, like thumbnail plan for the for the whole issue. Um, and that's usually about eight weeks out from when we actually then ship mm -hmm, mm -hmm, things to mm -hmm. the printer. So for the next few weeks, we're kind of just really starting to go back and forth with the author to see if what we think makes sense <laughs> makes yeah. sense from their point of view as well. Do we have the information in which to um, actually do that? Um, do the, does a data set exist that sounds like it may exist, but we haven't seen it yet? Um, is it in a form that we can use it? Um, that sort of thing. Uh, and then usually, you know, between six and four weeks out, we're starting to hire um, artists and data visualizers to sort of actually start developing concept sketches based on the reference material um, I assemble. And then we go through kind of a concept sketch, tight sketch, final artwork sort of uh, phase where we're sort of, you know, routing things internally so all of the editorial team can um, make sure that uh, we're all kind of um, on the same page and then um, sending it out to scientists to make sure we're representing their information correctly. Um, and then ultimately um, a fact check um, once things have kind of finalized um, 
and then off to the printer. And then mm -hmm. we're sometimes then, we need, well, more than sometimes, we're then reworking things for the iPad um, and occasionally um, reworking it for uh, the web as well. So uh, how uh, sorry um, how, how linear is this process? So it sounds very like straightforward now that you say it, but how how often do you have to go back and sort of redo one of the steps from before? Or <laughs> does sometimes maybe a great graphic change the article? Or you know like how is it as streamlined as as you say now? Or are there often surprises as well? There's often surprises. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, often you, you you'll make the assumption that oh there must be some data there there's data that supports this in a form that we can use and mm -hmm. will make a great graphic. I can picture it in my mind's eye. Yeah. And then you discover that, well, actually um, that comes from several different papers. Um, they might need to retool the text to help make that clear. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't really lend itself to being able to be pulled together and displayed in one graphic um, and yet displaying it in many different, you know, in lots of different chunks doesn't make sense um, for the reader. And, you know, so there's definitely uh, uh, surprises along the way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Is it often that the scientists also would correct and say like, yeah, you can't really put it that way or that's oversimplified? I mean, I know when I work with scientists, that's often the concern they have is that that they feel they should add like five different asterisks with disclaimers, you know, why, why it's... It it's not really put like more that. specifically, yeah. yeah, and just this this sort of fear of that people might overgeneralize your findings. Absolutely, yeah. A lot of folks are worried that we're oversimplifying in our effort just to clarify. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but once we sort of say, well, we actually we 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 can't use the jargon, even though you know, and, and I think we need to strip jargon out and and as far as labels go and visual jargon, because mm -hmm. a lot of these scientists are used to certain icons that mean something very specific to them. Or plot types also. That right, just right. Just neuroscientists do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so once we, you know, explain that, we you know, we can't use that word or we can't use that icon mm -hmm. because even though it means something very specific, the audience um, isn't going to know what, you know, that specific meaning. So, um, but that we, we're not trying to oversimplify, we're just trying to clarify and, and can they help us do that? Um, and sometimes that means we're adding footnotes to data mm -hmm. visualizations. Other times it means the um, intro caption sort of rounds out a little bit more to kind of indicate that, um, that there's some caveats at play. Mm -hmm. um, but generally when they, uh, you know, when a, when a scientist understands that we're creating a visualization for a larger larger audience. Um, they our, our readers tend to be science savvy, but they're not specialists necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, we're we're thinking of doing you know um, uh, what if a biologist wants to read an article on quantum physics? Can we help make it clear enough for them? Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, but that's true. It's so Scientific American has a certain style already, and you can sort of. People know that probably as well, like scientists, so they sort of know the, know the level at which you will treat something, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. 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 Sorry, so, Enrico, we cut oh, you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keep cutting you off. <laughs> yes. It's not I don't know done. what is happening. Today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. No, you go ahead. <laughs> uh, I don't remember. What I <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> 
I'm I sure it was remember. good. Um, yeah. No, I wanted to ask you, uh, I guess sometimes the scientists already come to you with some of the existing charts that they have, I don't know, in their papers or just out of their analysis. Yes. Right? And I mean, my in my experience, I've been working a little bit on the... Uh, visual presentation side of things with scientists. And what is really interesting, at least from my experience, is that um, there are many scientists out there who have a very hard time thinking what is the, I mean, drawing a very strong line between visualization or charts or representation for analysis, and then using, changing these charts in a way that they are much more easier to understand uh, when they are used for presentation, right? I'm wondering if you notice exactly the same thing in your case, because I noticed this thing many, many times. Often uh, the scientists will will send us um, visual material with their preliminary manuscript at our request. So they'll send in what they think might be useful for us or um, to, to use as an illustration or a, or a, a data visualization with their article. Um, they'll often send in like PowerPoint presentations, so things where they're already kind of communicating it to um, an mm -hmm. audience, but it tends to be an audience of their peers, so there's still a lot of jargon mm -hmm. and that sort of mm -hmm. thing involved. Mm -hmm. What I find more useful is I generally then go and do searches for their their um, research papers that are connected to the topic that we're writing about and see what visualizations they have done during their analysis stage or to communicate in their scientific papers because mm -hmm. that's when you see kind of a more a, a kind of a naked look at the data in some ways a little bit so um, that's where I'll see a visualization that looks like there's a really interesting punchline or data set involved but could really benefit from a makeover um, sure. And that's the sort of thing like um, Moritz uh, a few years back now did a, a data visualization for us on um, bees. And um, that wasn't connected to a larger article, but it was, it was um, going through some research um, for a different piece on, on bees and uh, came across this, this really neat punchline and this clearly very rich data set, but um, with a huge opportunity to, um, to present it in a different way because it was really um, difficult to interpret in the way it was um, visualized. Um, in the original paper, at least for a broader audience. Um, it probably, you know, was useful uh, for communicating within their lab and with other um, folks in their field. But, um, but it's kind of fun to run across these, these pieces that you're sort of like, I'm just itching to get my hands on that data set so we can <laughs> sort of try some different things with this because there's a really interesting punchline and I can kind of see some interesting patterns here. But uh, mm -hmm. let's see if we can blow that out and really make, um, make it obvious. Um, so do they ever discover something new once you redesign their visualizations? Uh, that's an interesting just, question. I don't know. Um, not, you know, I haven't really run into that with a data visualization, although some have been very excited about the results. There's a um, one that's coming out, gosh, I think it's in April, so I don't think I can talk about it too specifically <laughs> yet. Um, but it was, it's always fun when the scientist comes back to you and says, oh, you did it in a way that's, that's better than our uh, original. Can I use <laughs> that for my presentations? Can I oh, use yeah, that? Yeah, that's nice, yeah, right? That's yeah, really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Then you know it worked. <laughs> yeah, that's really rewarding. Um, yeah. It happens a little bit more often 
or it has happened more often with um, illustrations. So if we're doing like a dinosaur reconstruction or a scene and mm-hmm. you and you ask them, oh, by the way, you know, are we depicting the, you know, the tail correctly here? They're like, oh, that's a good question. We really don't know what that yeah. <laughs> looks like. <laughs> um, so, or, or gosh, we haven't thought about that piece, uh, you know, not, not necessarily with a dinosaur reconstruction, but when we're, we're trying to put everything in context, so, mm-hmm. gosh, we haven't thought about that piece of it. Well, we're going to have to, you know, think about on that some more and maybe that'll help guide research in the future. So that's a great time to briefly talk about our sponsor. Data Stories is supported by Tableau Software, helping people see and understand their data. Tableau lets people connect to any kind of data and visualize it on the fly. Databases, spreadsheets, and even big data sources are easily combined into interactive visualizations, reports, and dashboards. As you know, I use it quite a bit as well for exploring datasets, especially early in the project when you want to get an overview and communicating already the key insights, maybe gaps in the data or the big patterns uh, together with your clients and, and experimenting visually. And uh, it's it's a great tool. I'm much looking forward to the new version. So Tableau 9 is in beta already. There's big improvements uh, coming along, uh, both in respect to performance, new features, uh, mobile support, and so on. So I'm really looking forward to that. But uh, what is your data trying to tell you? For your free trial, visit Tableau Software at tableau.com slash data stories. That's T-A-B-L-E-A-U dot com slash data stories and now back to the show so and in terms of um i'm curious to hear how much you know about uh the visual literacy of your readers and whether you are of course you are taking this into consideration when you design a new graphics i guess right uh but so how does uh, so I think these are two two questions at the same time. One is how much you know about how uh, easy it is for for your average reader to read a chart, and second, how does this influence uh, your design? Sure, uh, that's, that's a good question too. We're, um, we get a lot of feedback from readers in terms of you know letters and emails and that sort of thing. So we generally know if something did not work at all. <laughs> or if something worked really well. But the, the middle zone is much harder to figure out. And I know that online we're working towards um, being able to analyze that more through analytics and things. But but we just don't have enough uh, data on that collected yet, particularly since um, a lot of the information graphics are behind a paywall online. I mean, we're doing more and more for the web and hopefully that'll become easier and easier for people to, for more people to access. Um, but right now we don't have a whole lot of data. Um, so it's a little hard to, to say for sure, even when it comes to um, things like interactives, like we know how many people have gone to visit a particular page. Um, but, uh, you know, for instance, um, Ian Willem Tulp did a flavor network um, interactive for us based on the research of, oh, um, I want to get his name right here, um, Sebastian um, Anert and, oh, goodness. Um, Sebastian was it Anner- Laszlo Barabashi as well? Uh, yeah. It was by YY uh, uh, Young Yul An, Sebastian Anner, mm-hmm. and James Bagro. 
Yes, and Albert um, Babarasi uh, uh, did a study in uh, 2011 on uh, on flavor compounds and how yeah, they great study and a great visualization yeah. also again. Right, it's, uh, really nice. Uh, so that was a, a a redo of a of one of their visualizations in an interactive form, and Jan Willem kind of brought a different a different um, look at the whole thing, um, and it was quite popular based on how many people saw it online and 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 pick up from other um, venues and that sort of thing. But when I compare uh, the like click-through numbers and things on that to some of our other interactives, it's a little hard to tell if it's because of the topic. I mean, food, mm -hmm. you know, right, right. everybody yeah. can relate to that. Um, uh, you know, and there's things like labels that are like beer and cheese on here. So, you know, people will spend time with it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it, if I had more than one, uh, you know, version of this, then maybe we could start mm -hmm. to compare. But it's kind of hard to to tell if it's the topic that's leading the interest, uh, the timing, or um, or the interactive itself, um, in terms of really getting a lot out of that out of that data. But I think hopefully there, we'll there might actually be also some sort of coolness factor there because people like this kind of interesting networks with bubbles and I don't know. <laughs> right, right. right. It's attractive. It's very attractive. Right. And, and to the credit of the scientists that did the original study, their piece was quite popular a few years ago as well. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's something that resonates. It's a great study anyways. Yeah. 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 But that's exactly like this. It's also mixed up, as you say, like the content, the way it's promoted, uh, all kinds of highly nonlinear things can happen there. And in the end, you just get the aggregate effect. It's like, oh, lots of traffic, but you never, it's hard to isolate right. the factors. Yeah. Right. And yeah. we haven't produced enough of them to really kind of be able to, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. to uh, yeah, to sort that out. Yeah. But do you ever come to the point of, I don't know, during the design, you, you think about a certain solution and then you discard it because you think, it's, even if it's effective, it's too complex for your readers. Yes, although you know, we also have some interesting readers. Uh, and our readers <laughs> online and in print um, are, are a little bit different. And so uh, some folks who read our magazine really delight in things that completely like are mind benders mm -hmm. and, and require uh -huh. a lot of thought. Um, and intellect and time. Um, so we want to honor those readers. I mean, these are sort of, you know, maybe like a crossword, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's something yeah. they really want to dive Need in. Need to, to figure this out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they don't want you to edit things out. They want it to be as complex as it really is. It's interesting. Huh? So, yeah. so you do want to honor that on some level. Um, so the trick then becomes, as with lots of folks, uh, you know, is do you uh, leave that richness in, but make some things pop so that a uh, more casual reader can also get something out of it where you're leaving the richness in there for somebody who really knows a little more about the topic and really just wants to get uh, get their hands dirty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, there is a, a personal trait in psychology that is called need for cognition. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. <laughs> there is actually a standard scale to measure that. We've been using it for, for a couple of studies. And it's really interesting because it looks like there are you can actually measure... On a, on a broad spectrum, there are people who are interested in, uh, they have this natural tendency to uh, being in need of explanations. So they are not satisfied with facts. They want mm -hmm. to really understand how things work, right? <laughs> right? And at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who just get everything as as it is, right? Yeah, Without, yeah. As, a, as a black box, no need to look inside. 
And uh, I don't know, I find this very interesting and fascinating. And there is a lot of research on whether this can be changed or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, how so do you I guess the that? Scientific so the- American yeah. has a lot of, uh, probably you have a highly skewed kind of population of readers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, how do you do it? Would you try and make the graphic deliver something for everybody? Like have simple high level insights, but also some depth to it? Or do you sometimes just say, yeah, well, this one is... Uh, that's for the puzzlers, and the other one is more for yeah. the for the at a glance people. Uh, do you take this into account, or a bit? I mean, we always strive to make sure that a casual reader can get something out of it as well. So yeah. the decision then becomes how much richness to leave behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, how far do we want people to to puzzle to just to get you know to the nth degree out of it. Um, But, but the goal is yes, for a cold reader, um, you know, at the office or, or, or outside, can they, can they understand um, the, the main points of it? Definitely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you mentioned before that um, digital is sort of um, becoming more important, obviously iPad version, mobile interactives, uh, uh, how are things for a scientific American? Like, do you see it transitions fully to being a digital magazine, or do you think the print product will, or the let's say the static document, will always be the primary product? And these things are more satellite activities. Uh, what, right. What's your current take on that? Well, that's a good question. We uh, we definitely need to move forward and do more um, on uh, on the web, and and we're kind of uh, you know we're we're kind of upward and onward there. But I should also mention that Scientific American is the oldest continuously printed magazine in the United States. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I don't think anybody wants to be on staff when and if they ever decide to stop printing the magazine. I mean, that's a legacy <laughs> you can't get back. Right, we're, uh, right. so, uh, so there's definitely this, this legacy and this um, uh, there's something about that, that print version. So I seriously doubt that will go away. Um, mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean we can't. Or we shouldn't uh, be putting more energy and time and, and thought into um, what's available online as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what do you, um, I mean, currently do you, you say you do sometimes extension of the print graphic as interactive, right? Right. At the moment. Would you also sometimes do ju- something just interactive or do it the other way around or... or? Yeah, um, now just because of trying to make the best use of resources, if... Um, a lot of our interactives spin out of print projects. Um, but I think in the future, you know, print web, it, it's going to be less of a distinction. It's just a matter of, are we doing static? Are we doing interactive? Um, mm. They'll probably, um, you know, whatever whatever projects make sense to put our time and energy into, um, if, if two uh, pieces make sense out of that um, print and interactive great um, it's just kind of, kind of allocating resources you know time staff money you know mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing uh, and doesn't make sense um, in some cases you know not everything makes sense as an interactive so it's not worth um, putting the money into that and other times um, maybe we want to just explore an interactive um, and, and not do a print piece um, mm-hmm. so that's kind of all evolving now um, yeah, we had we had Scott Klein on the show as well uh, recently, and I thought I thought it was very fascinating to discuss with him as well on how an app can be 
also a journalistic product, sort of. Although yeah. it's something that is not finished at any point and is maybe more a provision of a data set or something. And I was just wondering if there's something like this in the science world, if Scientific American could also be a host for scientific data in some form that is continuously updated or something like this. Right. Well, we, uh, we we're kind of have experimented with different things as part of offshoots of the whole brand, and I'm sure we'll continue to do that. There was an Exoplanet um, app a few years mm -hmm. back um, that has some neat tools that allow uh, allow a reader to kind of change the parameters of where the planet is in in um, connection to the sun and that's uh -huh. or its its nice. its host yeah. star and that sort of thing. So um, so I'm sure we'll we'll experiment with that some more in the future as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I also wanted to ask you about, of course, I mean, being a magazine, you, other than having to create informative and correct charts, you also want to make sure that they are engaging, that people feel attracted, I guess, right? Right. So how, how I, I'm sure this plays a role in, in the whole process. Yeah, definitely. And actually, um, a couple of years ago, I gave a talk at a Communicating Complexity conference and um in Algaro, and uh, that was the the kind of the whole crux of the of the talk was how do you engage people um, in a graphic that is portraying some pretty either complex or abstract um, content. Um, you know, a lot of our quantum articles and that sort of thing. You want to make something relatable so that people can uh, feel like they they want to jump into the graphic and give it some time. Um, and most of my examples on that are actually illustrative. So, um, but as I, I, you know, I was talking with um, uh, with uh, Santiago um, Ortiz. Ortiz. Yes, yeah. and he and he was wondering about how does that relate to some of the data visualizations, um, and. Uh, you know, it's funny because as I was thinking about it, like the flavor network that Yem Willem Tulp did for us, and um, there was a gender gap um, interactive that uh, Periscopic did for us recently. And um, those aren't kind of, they don't have a veneer or they don't, we didn't really add in illustrative details or anything to help engage the reader. Mm. In part because I think the topics are so um, intuitive and uh, inclusive, um, you know, food. Everyone can relate to that. You know, you see a few mm -hmm. labels that that uh, are a few different food items. Um, okay, you, you get it. You can start to jump in, and and you're okay with maybe really kind of um, learning about a new graphic form and trying to understand that because the the subject matter behind it is so intuitive and familiar. Um, with a gender gap graphic, okay, people understand the concept of of um, you know. PhDs and they're looking at countries and male and female and these are all um, topics that are familiar. So um, it, it's it's things like um, when you get down to just using like species names for labels and things where you might need a few other cues like with the bee graphic that Maurice did for us we included some um, small bee illustrations to help somebody who's just flipping through the magazine look at that page and say, oh, this is about bees, <laughs> you know? And then, you know, just that half a second and then, okay, I can get this and then dive yeah, yeah. in and really want to spend some more time with it. Um, we did a similar thing with a, um, a graphic science on um, 
on uh, the genome of uh, different primates, so what really makes a chimp different than a human. Um, Martin um, Krasinski, I always get his name wrong. Martin Krzywinski. <laughs> there we go. Um, did this great series of Hilbert curves for us. Oh, I, I saw that one. I love it. Yeah, but it's I kind love of the an, Hilbert curves. Yeah, well, it's an abstract um, form. At least a lot of people aren't terribly familiar with them. So again, there we thought, well, let's just add some spot illustrations of a chimp, a human, um, uh, and a few others, uh, just to help give that half a second for somebody to say. Uh, some of this is very unfamiliar to me, but those things are familiar. Uh, let me like now try to jump in. And I think maybe with the food and the gender graphic, those words were very familiar. So that was enough to get somebody to jump in perhaps. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and do you think interaction plays a role there? Do you think that people will actually be more engaged on interactive pieces or maybe even less engaged they may actually be scared of? That's a good question. I think, you know, I haven't done enough of them to really kind of get a sense of, of how long people are really spending with these. But, but clearly that food one hit a nerve. And I think it's because you could relate to almost every single category in there directly. Like you have eaten these foods. It's not even just mm. something that you're aware of. Um, and, and it was kind of a tool that you could, um, you could use an experiment with. Um, so I think, I, I, you know, I think that does, it does help, but we, we generally do need to kind of set it up with a, here's what kind of our punchline is, or here's, here are a few things that, you know, we found interesting about this, um, but feel free to jump in and explore and find more patterns. Okay. And uh, so I, I wanted to change topic a little bit. And I mean, our listeners are very often curious about how do you become a uh, uh, visualization designer. So I'm wondering if you can uh, give some tips to people that want to become graphic designers, maybe doing something similar to what you do or people in your team do. Sure. It's interesting because I actually, um, you know, I, I do some data visualization and I, and I am probably considered also a graphic designer, but um, I'm more of an art director. So I'm generally trying to find other artists um, mm -hmm. to work with. So I can tell you a little bit about uh, what I look for when I what look for What do you for look for? Yeah, per yeah, perfect. Yeah, um, I love that. Because we do have uh, kind of this this print product that uh, that's a big part of, of who we are and the website, um, I look for um, data visualizers who can can kind of translate what might be done on the web into a form that makes sense in print as well. And really... Um, craft things like label position um, and all of that. Because I think a lot of folks who are doing um, mostly web um, d data visualizations that are designed for the web, um, they, there's different parameters. There's different, there's different things that you have to um, consider. Um, whereas in print, just kind of the exact position of labels, the kind of resolution you're dealing with, being able to um, provide a file that can be editable um, for color um, and, and that sort of thing. So I look for um, a certain level of kind of craft and and color choice um, and just sort of this a sense of being able to work within um, within the page and kind of a a beautiful way. So I'm not I don't think I'm articulating this very well, but um, I, 
someone who can who can produce web interactives, but also um, uh, be able to then pull that out and and restyle it in a way that makes sense in print. So if I want to be discovered by you, what should I do? <laughs> Send me an it's email. Already <laughs> it's already happening. It's already happening. Actually, I, I get emails from artists and I look at every one of them and I file portfolio URLs. Um, uh -huh. But sure. uh, generally, I, I also look for folks who are very comfortable with scientific topics. Um, that's yeah, pretty of key. Because in some in some cases I'll be putting them in direct contact with a research scientist, and I want to know that um, that uh, that that they can uh, communicate effectively with the with the scientists, and and um, and also in some cases if the data set itself is highly specialized, um, like a genome um, data, I'll, I'll go with somebody like Martin um, who who is very familiar with how that uh, how that data is stored and what it means um, and, and, and all of that. So it's not just the craft, but also being able to relate to other people <laughs> in a certain way, right? Right, right. No, uh, and, and a comfort level. <laughs> oh, with... I totally understand that. I mean, it's it's very, very important. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but there you see all these things that need to come together, right? It's like the yeah. understanding the science, uh, yeah. talking to the people, like getting the gist out of the scientists as well. Um, doing interactive, doing print, right. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe text as well, and so yeah. all in four so, weeks, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so it's a fairly so, narrow profile, right? So, <laughs> well, it depends. <laughs> so and um, so most most of the people who work with you are graphic designers. What kind of backgrounds do they have? Oh, let's see. Um, gosh, I. I I think a lot of the data visualizers I'm working with now do have a science background, interestingly oh, enough. Cool. Like, I uh, don't know, physics? Uh, astronomy. Astronomy. Um, oh, genetics. Cool. Um, I think uh, those two fields in particular, there's, you know, once you know a certain set of definitions and abbreviations, it can help quite a lot. Um, and just folks who can then also read the primary research. Sure, um, sure. Uh, that's, that's hugely helpful. Um, but then also, I mean, I work with a lot of illustrators as well, um, and those tend to be folks who do have a specialty in the sciences um, at some level, whether they've just been, they, they do a lot of scientific illustration, or, um, or if they're, uh, they actually have a formal background in it. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. And is it more often scientists who somehow discovered their artistic side, or is it more often artists who discovered their <laughs> scientific side? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> good question. <laughs> huh. I, I'll, I'll have to ask, I'll have to conduct a survey. Yeah, that would be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm do that. Yeah, I mean, the order of events is often not so important, but it's, right, it's right. sort of interesting because you can in principle come both ways. But it's ways, true right? that great yeah. scientists are characterized by, uh, they know very well how to communicate their science, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at, I don't know. Feynman. Yeah, Feynman is no. uh, yeah, very... <laughs> oh, my heroes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> But not all of them, right? Not I mean, what you're really yeah, saying, course, all yeah. great scientists are great at communications. I don't think so. I think no, I'm no, I don't sure. think so too. But yeah, yeah, some of them are. But it's always the greatest thing if it comes together. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fine, man. 
One of the one of my favorite things I received um, in an email once was from a, a scientist who studies gamma rays um, in lightning, and he drew us a diagram with pen and ink and either colored pencils or crayons. I'm not quite sure. This nice. beautiful cartoon specifically for us. And it was wow. it was just stunning and perfect, <laughs> you know. Uh, we had, we had somebody else redraw it in a different style, but all of the content was there. It was pretty amazing. Cool. Yeah. And I guess by now you know a lot of science. <laughs> for a very short period of time, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> stuff as much in my head as I can for four to eight weeks, and then it's on to the next uh, the next topic. Yeah. So. Um, I think I want to talk about a little bit about uh, these trends, and uh, I don't know. I'm curious to hear your opinion about what is happening in the field, what has happened recently, since you've been working in this area for a few years now. Uh, so not only what has changed in these last few years, but also what you think is going to happen in the future. I know it's very hard to talk about the future, but just I'm curious to hear about what you think are the main trends out there? Well, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens as scientists become more and more savvy with data visualization. Oh, yeah. Uh, in a broader sense. I feel like a lot of scientists have a very good handle on data visualization within a certain canon for their particular field. Um, so there's this been, a, you know, and, and I'm presuming some of this, but it seems like there are a set of tools that is, you know, that are very well used in a particular field and people have been using them for a long time. So you see the same kinds of visualizations coming out in their journal articles. I'm really excited to see as more and more of these tools and just, you know, uh, coding, uh, so doing some custom work how that will kind of make visualizations from the analysis and communication stage mm -hmm. really change. Um, and, and one thing that actually got me thinking about this too is uh, recently, and this seems like an aside, but I promise it'll come back around. Um, <laughs> recently I talked with, uh, well, I was kind of obsessed with a stacked plot chart on the cover of Joy Division's Unknown Pleasures album. Oh, yeah. As a pulsar visualization. Um, and, and I was really wanted to know the, the origin of it in terms of who created it and why. Um, so I, I eventually tracked down um, Hal Kraft, who is the, he created it as a scientist for the purpose of analysis. Mm -hmm. that, that chart was to help him answer some questions. It wasn't to communicate that science more broadly. It was a tool to help him look for patterns. Um, and yet, it has captured the imagination of people who don't even know what it shows. So I'm kind of fascinated by these, these visualizations that were tools for analysis with no intent for it being a broadly, like a, w a way to communicate their findings. They haven't mm -hmm. even really kind of analyzed the findings yet. This is part of their process. Um, I'm really fascinated by pieces like that that then serve to communicate in, in such kind of an elegant um, and efficient way. So I'm wondering if we're going to get more and more of that sort of thing. Because that piece, actually, Hal Kraft, he, he developed... You know, he, he programmed that out. Like that was something that he needed to sit there. He said you know, with Fortran and, and, and wrote it 
wrote the program to create that. And so mm -hmm. as more and more scientists might be dealing with writing programs for visualizations that are a little bit more customized and not just using um, existing uh, templates and that sort of thing, I think it'll be really interesting to see how many of those kind of transcend and then become um, great tools for communication as well. And I, I can also see lots more scientists picking up D3 and processing. These are the two things, you know, some, especially like PhD students, they tend to discover somehow on the web. And then you're absolutely right. When they use that to develop their own exploratory tools, we have suddenly much richer landscape, right? Because, I mean, right now it, it is really in each field, as you said, always uh, dominated by MATLAB or, you know, the tool of choice uh, in, in a certain field. Right, yeah. right. And But as also limits the vocabulary uh, by a great deal. Yeah. And as folks are developing custom visualizations for analysis, it might not, it might not be too many more steps out from that that they then kind of um, modify it for communication. So um, they have a little more control over it then. And it, I think it'll be really interesting to see what's coming out of the journal articles uh, moving mm -hmm. forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and at the same time, many teams also realize if they want to get to the cover of Magazine X, <laughs> you know, with their research, which <laughs> obviously everybody wants, yeah, they will need a striking image that is unique and is a good icon uh, for what they do. You know, it doesn't need to tell all this, the big story necessarily, but just also sometimes just be a good representation of this bigger activity they have, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a huge trend in science in general i think i mean I'm, i'm not that old but i guess scientists now face a crazy competition right and if you don't exist somewhere i mean if you don't have some degree of exposure you you basically don't exist mm -hmm. so having some sort of communication strategies i think is getting more and more important for scientists of any any kind and yeah i mean This is demonstrated by the fact that there are lots of scientists who have blogs out there, for instance, and really do deeply care about their communication. Right, yeah. But let's say inside the universities, is it often still more the how many journal articles do you have? <laughs> like, isn't I think the, it's changing. I think it's changing, changing because, yeah. I mean, um, it's changing because everyone has a lot of papers now, right? Ah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Right? So I think it's it's getting harder and harder to to have some really differentiating factors, right? Yeah. yeah. So like I don't know. And of course, with the advent of internet, you I mean, if you have some at least some degree of interest in having an impact on real, I don't know, real world problems and and people, then you do need exposure, right? Yeah. So there will be a job for Jen also in the future. You think? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I would totally hire a person like this to come in the department and uh, help professors. Uh, we actually do have a person like this, not exactly like Jen, but we are we do have people in the department, for instance, who are uh, experts in communication and try to just put out there the stuff that we do in the lab. Yeah. So I think that's crucial. Yeah, but maybe that's really a good tip for 
design students, you know, who think about, oh, okay, you know, oh, yeah. what are the fields Absolutely. where I could get active? I think many of them don't have science, you know, on the radar. No, I think science is a huge, a huge area. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's fun, <laughs> right? You can learn a lot. Yeah, most of the time. <laughs> most of the time. Well, you have to deal to deal with scientists. It's just not always easy. <laughs> no, but I think it's a, a super underestimated opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I yeah. think universities should pair up design departments and science departments for... Uh, right. Yeah, oh, yeah totally, totally. Creating posters for pre, uh, for conferences and things. It's amazing how many... I mean, I think it's come a long way since... Um, since I was going to science conferences and undergraduate uh, work, but but just when I think back on how many uh, how long the lines of text were and how uh, you know just some basic design principles even yeah, even yeah, beyond yeah. you know visualization uh, you know even more basic than that um, just basic design principles um, could be yeah and I think every undergraduate course should in computer science or any other sciences should have some degree, at least one course on how to do, how to design things properly, right? right. Yeah, see, and the, the, the same way we teach kids how to write. So we, we could right. totally have an exchange program. <laughs> <It totally exists. laughs> Take it on the road. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. I think, I mean, in my experience, the hardest part is understanding the language because with some scientists, the there's so much jargon there that it's, it takes just a very long time just to penetrate this wall of crazy words that they keep using over and over again. Right. And I guess, Jen, I mean, I guess you, 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 you are faced with this problem all the time, right? Right. And generally, uh, but, what I I'll, I'll start with, uh, if if we're redoing a graphic that's pretty straight, straight up, uh, very similar to what they did originally. I'll just change all the words on the axes and that sort of thing <laughs> so that they're, they're they're forced to react to my oversimplification, but we can't go all the way back to the jargon word. So then we start to kind of converge in on uh -huh. something that people understand that's still, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, I, I've, I worked with quite a few scientists, but biologists are, I mean, it's really, really hard. I find it really, really hard. They use so many technical words. I don't know. They probably think the same about designers, though, you know, letting... Uh, you think so? <laughs> I don't know. Come on. We have jargon, too. <laughs> I don't know. I find biology very heavily loaded with jargon compared to other sciences. I don't know. Maybe it's my own bias. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think both sides need to <laughs> approach each other. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. I think... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's almost one hour that we... No, more than one hour that we've been talking. Um, I don't know. Moritz, you want to ask something else? No, I think we, we covered it all. I mean, it's a fascinating topic. I'm, I'm yeah. very interested in science communication because I think it's... It's such a hard thing to do. <laughs> and so yeah. It's far. Yeah. And so um, it's great to discuss the, at least a bit. And maybe we can uh, come back to that more often, get more, maybe real, like, you know, hard scientists on the show once or so, what their perspective is. I think it's a great topic. And as I said, probably a good career opportunity for many designers they don't, they are not aware of. So, absolutely. Right, you don't have to choose between science and art. You can. You can combine them. Exactly. You can have it all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Superpowers. Yeah. Cool. Thanks so much, Jen. It was great having you. Great. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Jen. All that right. was awesome. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Data Stories is supported by Tableau Software, helping people see and understand their data. 
Get answers from interactive dashboards wherever you go. For your free trial, visit Tableau Software at tableau.com slash datastories. This is T-A-B-L-E-A-U dot com slash datastories.